From the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing, China, this is the China in the World podcast, hosted by Paul Hanley. You're listening to the Carnegie Tsinghua China and the World podcast, a series of conversations with Chinese and international experts on China's foreign policy, international role, and China's relations with the world. Brought to you from the Carnegie Tsinghua Center, located here in Beijing. Today, I'm delighted to be with a former colleague and a friend, Dr. Michael J. Green, who is the Senior Vice President for Asia and the Japan Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's also the Chair of Modern and Contemporary Japanese Politics and Foreign Policy at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Uh, it's been my pleasure this week uh, to host Mike as part of the Carnegie Tsinghua Distinguished Speakers Program. It's a program we launched in 2010, aiming to provide opportunities for senior policy scholars and practitioners to engage with leading Chinese experts. Uh, as part of this week's Distinguished Speaker Program, Mike is taking part in a week-long program of activities that allow him and the Carnegie Tsinghua Center to engage with key stakeholders in China's business, academic, and diplomatic community. Mike previously served on the staff of the National Security Council from 2001 to 2005, first as Director for Asian Affairs, with responsibility for Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, and North Korea, and then as Special Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs and Senior Director for Asia, with responsibility for East Asia and South Asia. And I've had the honor of serving with Mike on the NSC. I joined in the spring of 2004 and worked with Mike until he left in 2005. Mike has had a number of previous uh, other important positions, including Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, Assistant Professor at the Paul Nietzsche School of Advanced, School of Advanced International Studies at John, Johns Hopkins University. Uh, he also worked as a Senior Advisor on Asia in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Trained as a historian, Mike's newest book, just out last week, called By More Than Providence, Grand Strategy in American Power in the Asia-Pacific Since 1783, was released this past week and examines the development of U.S. strategy and policy toward the Asia-Pacific to better understand the roots of U.S. strategy in the Asia-Pacific. We're fortunate to be speaking here now with Mike on our podcast this is the second time, Mike. Uh, this past fall, you and I spoke, uh, and you gave us your reflections on, as President Obama was getting ready to leave, uh, on what legacy he would leave with respect to Asia. Today, we're going to shift our focus from the past, looking at the past record of President Obama, to the future, uh, to the current, to the present and the future, to learn about some of the key uh, takeaways from your discussions in Beijing this week and to look specifically at the Trump administration and its and its policy with respect to Asia Pacific. So welcome back to our podcast, Mike. Thank you, Paul, and it's been great spending the week with you. And I've been so impressed with how the Carnegie Tsinghua Center um, creates connections and trust and dialogue between the United States and China. Really indispensable and uh, exciting work. It's good to well, see you. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> As you know, I've been trying to get you out here for quite a long time. You've got a number of different hats and jobs that you uh, uh, take on in the United States. I know you're quite busy, and we really appreciate your time out here. Before I get into talking about policy, um, some of our listeners have expressed an interest in, 
in learning about some of the experts that, that I interview. I've known you for quite a while now. Um, as I said, uh, we, we met in the White House in the Bush administration. Wanted to, you've been an expert on Japan and an expert on the Asia Pacific uh, for quite some time. And I wanted to know, I mean, I know a little bit about you. You speak fluent Japanese. I run into people all the time who talk about uh, how, how great your Japanese is. You have a black belt in Yiaido. Well, Did I enough. say it right? Close enough. Which is uh, basically the sword, right? Uh -huh. The Japanese sword. Mm -hmm. And um, I know from my time on the National Security Council, because every once in a while you would request a couple days off to go to Scotland to play the bagpipes, and you've won international prizes on the Great Highland Bagpipe. How did you get into, where, where did you get your interest in Japan and in the Asia Pacific? So I was, I grew up in Washington and in the Washington DC suburbs and my mom uh, was a diplomat in Italy <clears throat> before I was born and my dad worked for the Justice Department and uh, the Marine Corps. So I'm um, a sort of classic East Coast uh, establishment, um, Washington DC kid <clears throat> and uh, always look to Europe. That's where my ancestors came from. It's where your ancestors yeah. came from. In high school, we studied much more about American history in Europe than we did about Asia. Um, and even in college, I was a um, history major, but most of the coursework I took was on the philosophy of history, European mm. history, and American mm. history. I really only had one semester on Asian history. So it was kind of a fluke. This was after college, basically. This is in college. So basically, it was after college that I came to Asia, to Japan. Mm. Um, I passed the diplomatic exam, the Foreign Service written exam. So you were thinking about joining the I thought service? I was pretty sure I wanted to be a diplomat, like yeah. a lot of my kids, grow, uh, right. my friends growing right. up in, in Washington. <clears throat> um, so I applied I applied first uh, to spend a year in Scotland, and I was going to learn bagpipes, and uh, and then I was going to join the Foreign Service, and I was going to go to Europe, and I was it was the Cold War, and I was going to stare down the Soviets and win the Cold War as a diplomat. Mm. Um, but uh, I went to Japan, and, and, and then I traveled to China. Spent a month traveling around China in 1985 um, and, and Mongolia. And I was fascinated. Hmm. And I, was, I learned Japanese. I got on the airplane and I got out a Berlitz Japanese book. And I, hmm. Ichi ni san, konnichiwa. And I came out surprised. <laughs> I learned Japanese reasonably well. I started studying Korean. And I just got hooked. Hmm. And then in graduate school, even in graduate school, I was thinking I would do security studies in, in Europe. And I realized in the late 1980s how important Asia was becoming mm -hmm. and how few people there were in our um, universities yeah. and our foreign service who spoke Chinese or Japanese or Korean. And I was hooked. And then I spent the rest of my career uh, playing bagpipes, but also um, going back and forth between government jobs and then university jobs. And for me, that was... Uh, exciting because you could think about ideas, write books, mm -hmm. and then you can go into government and see what does and does not work, yeah. and then come out. Um, it's not easy to do, but in the American system, you can be a scholar practitioner, and yeah. it's exciting. So, you know, you work at Georgetown University as a professor and uh, teach a lot of uh, students. Given your experience and how you got into Japan and Asia, what, what lesson did you learn? What, what sort of lesson do you impart upon your students in terms of their career and how to, about how to think about their career trajectory? Well, one thing is uh, learn, learn languages and learn them well. Mm -hmm. 
uh, don't just take Chinese in college and think you're going to be a China expert. If you really want to know China, you've got to you've got to be able to dream in Chinese, mm-hmm. which I bet you do. <clears throat> well, maybe maybe I know my nightmares. Son does. I don't know. Okay, your son does. You have to be able to um, uh, really get inside the system and understand it. And 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 frankly, nowadays there are so many American kids, um, not not a large number, but there are lots of kids yeah. who take immersion courses in Chinese or Japanese or yeah. Korean in in elementary or high school. And um, and when I was in grad school, you basically, if you were an Asia expert, you knew one language and mm-hmm. only one language. Mm-hmm. I I did Korean too. But nowadays, I have graduate students who can speak Japanese and Korean, or Chinese and Japanese, because they're starting so early. Yeah. And uh, and that's really important. And also, um, you have to decide your career track. If you want to be a professor, it's going to pull you in certain directions where you really have to become an expert on theory. If you want to be out in the field doing diplomacy or working in the field on democracy or people-to-people exchange, then you're going to be going into NGOs uh, right. or maybe the government. Um, it's 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 important to know you know your track. Mm-hmm. You can change later. You can move around, but you got to get one thing mm-hmm. right first. And I also tell people um, it's good to be an Asia expert, a Japan expert, a China expert, but you'll do well if you also know an issue well. Mm. So you know defense issues, mm. uh, for example, um, and maybe it's energy, maybe it's women's empowerment, maybe it's um, uh, nonproliferation. But it's always a good idea as a scholar mm-hmm. or in an NGO or as a practitioner to know the country and then have one functional mm-hmm. issue that you really know well. And yours, what, what have you tried to make your strategy? Uh, so for me, strategy? it was security policy, mm-hmm. although I spent time in USTR, so I'm also interested in trade policy. Yeah. And I'm interested in democracy and human rights. But the core one was uh, national security policy. Right. I was at Georgetown last month. As you know, uh, your, your colleague and our former NSC colleague, Victor Chai, asked me to come talk to his students. One of his students pulled me aside after the talk and said, you know, I'm interested in learning a language. I've been interested in going into foreign policy work, maybe as a foreign service officer or it, through some other route. But I'm worried at what I see going on in the Trump administration where they don't seem to be relying on the national security experts and the foreign policy experts and budgets are being cut. Um, how do you respond to questions like that when your students, you know, what, what do you think the trajectory of in terms of the roles and the uh, contributions that students and professionals will be able to make in those fields? I, I, yeah, I get that question from my students. Well, I got that question from my students a lot after mm-hmm. the election because... Um, the Trump campaign was an anti-establishment, anti-intellectual, anti-expert campaign, a lot like Brexit in the UK, sure. where basically all experts, all data um, were, were doubted and people mm. got their own information on the internet and so forth. And that's disturbing. And especially if you're embarking at the beginning of your career right. and learning right. all of these languages and history, um, it won't last. Yeah. It won't last. It's a revolutionary moment for mm-hmm. people uh, like Steve Bannon and others in the White right. House who want to break the East Coast elite. But the reality is, America, if you're an American, American companies, mm. um, the American Congress, the American people, church groups, mm. NGOs, and the American government want more expertise on Asia, not yeah. less. Yeah. And you can already see the, um, the changes in the Trump administration as he right. has... Uh, started bringing in people like General McMaster's in the NSC sure. and so forth, and those guys mm-hmm. um, do not want amateurs right. telling them what to do when they right. go to China. 
Yeah. Uh, and if they do get amateurs, they'll go to China or they'll go to Japan. They'll make a mistake and they'll come back and they'll say, get me somebody who knows some something. Professionals. Yeah, some experts. <laughs> and so I think experts yeah. will be fine. Yeah. But it is disruptive and a bit unnerving yeah. right now. Yeah. I think that's right. In fact, I told the student, you know, I was leaving there and going to the State Department to talk to them about China. I was talking to NSC officials about China. So below the top sort of leadership level, it seems to me that the people in those key positions, as you, as you suggest, are looking to experts to help them already. I mean, I see it already happening. Maybe not the president himself, but below, you know, his people below that. You know, the Clinton administration in uh, 1993 came into office. And in those days, Japan was the big threat, yeah. the economic powerhouse that was going to dominate the world. So Bill Clinton got together this group of experts to advise him on um, how to get Japan in economics and how to beat Japan mm. at their own game in economics. And almost none of them spoke Japanese or had lived in Japan or had done serious scholarly work or policy work on Japan. Mm. And they gave him advice and it completely failed. And one reason I got into government was because I finished my PhD on the U.S.-Japan alliance, on Japan's economy and politics in 1994. And the, initially the Pentagon, uh, Dr. Joe Nye and Kurt Campbell and others, and then the rest of the government were looking for people who really knew about Japan. Not people who had some theories about Japan. Right. And I taught for a year at SICE, but then they said, could you come and work with us at the Pentagon? And um, from that point forward, the administration, the Clinton administration, wanted people who knew mm. Japan and knew China. And so, and in the, even in the Bush administration, when we had the incident in April 2001, mm -hmm. when the U.S. patrol plane, the EP-3, um, was uh, hit by a sure. Chinese fighter jet and... Yeah. and and had to make an emergency landing on Hainan. It was a first, the first major crisis yeah. for the president. There were some people who came into the president and said, I know how China works. Yeah. I know how Asia works. But in the end, it was obvious who did and who didn't. And people like Rich Armitage at State yeah. did. And, and that's who the president usually turned to on Asia. So ultimately, so, even in the Clinton administration, they, over time, you know, really sooner or later, bring in... Sooner experts. or later, the ideology or the academic theories mm -hmm. crash into the reality. And um, and so, you know, they're, they're going to need a lot of expertise. Well, let's use that to pivot into what we're looking at today. Um, you and I last spoke, as I mentioned earlier, a couple months away from the end of the Obama administration. President Obama was still in office. He had just completed his 11th uh, and final trip to Asia for the G20. Uh, he also went during that trip for the U.S. ASEAN Summit and the East Asia Summit. We evaluated his performance during our discussion. We talked about Southeast Asia and what the Obama administration had done with respect to expanding sort of the uh, presence in Southeast Asia more. Great power relations. I think you gave a sort of a subpar rating there, mm -hmm. particularly looking at the rocky relationship with uh, China. And we talked about the pivot to Asia uh, and what a failure of the TPP would do with respect to the pivot of a pivot uh, to Asia. We're now fast forward five months. Uh, we're here today. We're just finishing President Trump's administration's first two months in office. He's done a lot of tweeting. He's already on day one, sort of pulled out of the TPP. He's criticized China during the campaign for trade imbalances, not doing enough on North Korea, building and militarizing disputed islands in the South China Sea. At the same time, he's been criticizing our allies in, in the campaign. Um, his campaign rhetoric, of course, uh, Japan, South Korea, not doing enough to support our alliances, not taking on enough of the burden. Um, 
You've just published your book, as I mentioned, by More Than Providence, which goes back and looks at over 200 years of U.S. strategy, uh, policy to the Asia-Pacific. Given, and I think it took you, what, eight years to do the research. So considerable uh, research done to put this book together. What, in your, given that perspective, um, what really are we looking here, seeing here from President Trump? How much can he and will he move away from what appears to be, at least over the last few decades, a consistent U.S. foreign policy approach to Asia Pacific? Initially, as a candidate and in his first days as president, Donald Trump looked like he was going to change everything. He threatened the two pillars of American strategy in Asia today, um, our alliances and our relationship with China. And... um, I think a lot of people questioned whether this was a complete change in American strategy. Um, But then, uh, in February, within two days, he talked to Xi Jinping on the phone and reconfirmed uh, America's One China policy. And then he hosted Prime Minister Shinzo Abe of Japan and confirmed that the United States security commitment to Japan was solid, and in particular to areas administered by Japan, which includes the Senkaku or Daugida which in China is sensitive, but for Japan, that's the litmus test of an American president's commitment mm. uh, to Japan's security under our treaty, a commitment that um, uh, Clinton, Bush, and Obama all made. So he suddenly went back to, at least on these big pillars of American Asia policy, he went back to the fundamentals. So why did he attack and threaten and all the rest? Um, this is how Donald Trump has succeeded in life by being a negotiator who will leave nothing sacred Mm. in his real estate dealings, in his bankruptcy negotiations. uh, Business people who've dealt with Donald Trump say, nothing is sacred. He will attack or go after whatever you want. Mm -hmm. You know, in military strategy, they talk about Clausewitz and the other guy's center of gravity, their weak point. Uh, Trump will always go right at the weak point, at the thing the other guy wants the most to try to get a better deal. Mm-hmm. It's disruptive. It's hardball. It's one reason why very few major business people in America do business with Donald Trump more than once. Mm. But it, it's worked for him politically and economically. So I think he was saying to China, to Japan, to Korea, to our allies and mm-hmm. to our Chinese friends, nothing sacred. Mm-hmm. If you don't do what I want, and mm-hmm. give me what I want, I'm going to go right at the thing you care about most. Mm-hmm. The problem is... Uh, you can do that in business and walk away and never deal with the company again. But America can't walk away from China. Mm-hmm. America can't walk away from Japan. Um, and, um, you know, Japan and China called his bluff. And he reconfirmed those two key pillars. How did he get to the point where he decided to reconfirm America's commitment to the one China policy? What do you I, think ultimately happened? So I think fundamentally he was bluffing. And in his book, The Art of the Deal... When he talks about how to good, get a good deal, he writes about how to bluff. Um, so maybe Japan... You're not supposed to tell people how to bluff. Yeah, if you're going to bluff, and that's a core part of strategy, it's probably not a good idea to write a book about how you're right. going to do it. Um, so, so part of the answer, Paul, is that he never really meant it. Mm-hmm. It was all uh, transactional, negotiated mm-hmm. strategy. But that being the case, you can imagine that both Tokyo and Beijing are wondering, well, if he flipped once, how solid is this commitment? So, I mean, Japan's pretty happy. I think the Chinese government's somewhat reassured, but there's still a bit of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And maybe Donald Trump wants it that way. Does he have a 
grand vision for the Asia Pacific? Does he no. have a view where China fits into that? No. In my book, um, uh, you know, from one presidency to the next, you can you can you can kind of find a very clear idea of Asia strategy. I mm. think Reagan had one. Uh, you know, Theodore Roosevelt had one. Um, and sometimes there are presidents who think mostly about Europe, but some of their broad foreign policy strategy mm-hmm. extends to Asia. Almost every new president says, I'm going to focus more on domestic issues. Because mm-hmm. that's, even in the Cold War, what Americans care about. Um, so that's not new for Donald Trump to say, I'm going to focus on domestic issues. But what's new is that the 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 organizing um, concept for his political and domestic and foreign strategy is um, he it's transactional. He is going to get a better deal on everything from everyone. And that is not a strategy. That's a that's a that's a collection of tactics. That's a process issue. That's mm-hmm. a negotiating style. It's a style. It is did so yeah. no grand strategy, but you look at people like um, H.R. McMasters, mm-hmm. the new national security advisor, one of the great historians of American strategy who's now the top advisor in the White House, or um, General Mattis, who is called the the, the scholar warrior or the monk warrior because he's not married and he goes home at night and he reads history books, Um, uh, or Rex Tillerson, who operated an enormous international organization. These are very strategic people, very strategic people. Mm -hmm. So there will be, and that's also, by the way, why the One China Policy and the Alliance thing came back because those guys convinced Convinced the president. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are elements there of grand strategy, yeah. But the core ideology in the White House for many people is disruption and attack yeah. on the establishment and winning everywhere. Those are incompatible. You have to prioritize. And we'll see that, mm-hmm. you know, basically sort itself out. And it will be, I'm quite confident, moving back towards a mainstream yeah. foreign policy trajectory. But it will also be disruptive sure. and chaotic and it's exciting to watch. Um, in his book, Art of the War, he also talks about... Uh, keeping your opponent off balance and using unpredictability. Um, you know, you can argue that that's part of what he's doing as well with China. Um, seems to be doing also with some of our allies. I'm not sure that's a great strategy. But nevertheless, with the one China policy uh, and some of the tweets that he put out early on and just his initial sort of approach to China and posture towards China, um, it, has this been effective? I mean, his press secretary says... Donald Trump always gets something out of the negotiation and with respect to the one China policy implied that he got something by threatening from the Chinese side, but he sort of didn't didn't disclose what that might be. Did he get anything? Was it was it effective? Can, it, 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 does it make <coughs> sense to hold that one China policy out there as leverage? On the one, uh, three, three points. Yeah. On the, uh, number one, he didn't get anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, the coal cutoff uh, was not because Donald Trump was unpredictable and disruptive, for example. Um, uh, Number two, um, the um, fact that there was a disruption in U.S.-China relations or some apparent threat to the status quo uh, is is not new. Ronald Reagan Mm. came to office promising after Jimmy Carter had normalized relations. Right with the PRC, that he, Ronald Reagan, would then have normalized yeah. relations with Taiwan, too. Mm-hmm. He moved away from that pretty quickly. Um, but he, but in his first year as president, there yeah. were huge fights in the White House and with the State Department. Over by the end, we were selling weapons to Exactly, by the end. China. Yeah. By the end, you know, George Shultz yeah. had a 
historic trip across China. Right. We were selling weapons. Uh, uh, Bill Clinton came in and said, oh, I'm going to condition human rights and most favored nation status. We're not mm-hmm. going to give China trading rights unless they uh, make yeah. specific progress in human rights. And there was huge turmoil. Yeah. And in about a year, they kind of, they didn't abandon human rights mm-hmm. completely, but they moved away from that very mechanical right. and disruptive approach. And Bill Clinton and Jiang Zemin reached a historic agreement on China's entering the WTO. Mm-hmm. So the fact that there's disruption or uncertainty, even President Bush, right. George W. Bush, EP3. as you'll recall, had the EP3 incident. Um, he said on television, if Taiwan is attacked, I will do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes. I'll yeah. rise up and defend. We, presidents normally didn't say that. Right. It was it was shocking to the Chinese side, but yeah. he went to the Olympics in 2008 right. and had a relationship with Hu Jintao that was quite uh, quite strong. Right. So the fact that there's initial disruption mm-hmm. in an election and that American presidents come in and kind of start out tough with right. China, if you look at the historical pattern, you end up having six years yeah. of productive relations. Barack Obama came in and promised to respect China's core interests. Yeah. He said, uh, we, you know, in our administration, we said U.S.-China relations will be cooperative, constructive, uh, comprehensive, candid. constructive, and candid. Right. The Obama White House dropped candid right. and said positive. It will be positive. Um, started out very sort of optimistic and generous and probably had the most difficult relationship mm. uh, between an American Chinese leader that we've had in 30 years. So... Um, whether that's a cause or just a coincidence, mm-hmm. people can debate. But the fact that we've had these initial uh, collisions uh, does not mean U.S. relations are headed on a downward course. We may find that this president, and especially the team around him, yeah. um, like two big tough guys in a bar, sort of realize we're better off working together. Yeah. Initially, a little confrontation. A little pushing, a little sh- bump in the shoulder, right, right. a little tough talk. Yeah. And then, all right. I respect you, you respect me, let's get out of business. It, right. I, I'm not sure that that will happen, but I think history suggests yeah. that it could. Yeah. It at least opens up space now where the, where the two sides can begin to put the bilateral agenda together, which had, up until that point, I think the word we heard from here in Beijing is the Chinese side wasn't willing to do anything until they right. got this commitment on the one China policy. Apparently, one, sorry, go ahead. I was just to say one, one word of caution, though, for yeah. listener, listeners in China I do. I think it's very unlikely that Donald Trump, given uh, the ideological views in his administration, but also the sort of center-right conservative mm. views of his cabinet, I think it's very unlikely that he will go back to the new model of great power relations. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's very unlikely that um, that this administration will um, uh, give China sort of the privileged position in Asia. Mm-hmm. I think this is going to be a very pro-Japan, pro-Taiwan administration, even though we'll have friction with Japan, because mm-hmm. we'll have friction with everybody. And I think you will see some significant um, upgrading of American mm-hmm. defense capabilities, cooperation with Japan, missile defense, arms sales to Taiwan. Not revolutionary changes, mm-hmm. but um, I think Chinese listeners and people who care about U.S.-China mm-hmm. relations should not expect that we end up, after this difficult initial period, mm-hmm. going back to sure. the new model of great power relations. I think they're, they're going to have to look, these two leaders, for a different framework for, uh, for yeah. talking about U.S. generations. Yeah. Uh, beginning with candid. First be candid and then, and then figure out. Well, to out. this point, the, the things that Donald Trump has telegraphed uh, that would be on the bilateral agenda, of course, are addressing the imbalances in the trade relationship, the economic relationship, the, the commercial relationship. As you know, our businesses operating in, in, in China are feeling less welcome now. Um, 
North Korea will be on the agenda. In fact, they're doing a policy review uh, right now. And then uh, issues related to uh, the South China Sea. I hope you enjoyed listening to part one of this two-part podcast with Dr. Michael Green. Be on the lookout for part two, which will come out early next week. We turn our attention in part two to developments on the Korean Peninsula. And we look at uh, how President Xi and President Trump might approach their first meeting in the United States in early April. I encourage you to explore our site and see the work of all our scholars at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Thanks again and for listening, and be sure to tune in next time. Thank you.